Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic and you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're an every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Shai is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Well, Father Dan, welcome back. Great to be here, Chris. Yeah, thanks for the time. So, you know, the name of this podcast is After the Homily, things that didn't quite get into the homily, but maybe that you would have liked them to get in, and certainly listeners would like to have them in. And it's no surprise to listeners that you speak regularly about technology and the role that it that it can or should or maybe does play in our lives. But today we're going to talk about technology and sort of the current state of humanhood, <laughs> uh, you might say. So what 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 is going on with technology, artificial and otherwise, whatever that means? Well, technology isn't just one thing among many in the human world. It, it really is an intense form with which we express our humanity, even as that expression can serve, enhance, or, or even threaten that humanity. I, I think it's worthwhile just going way back to think of um, how the ancients grappled with the basic question of what it is to be a human. And one of the earliest definitions of, of being a human is um, to be human is to have reason and a hand. Homo habet rationem et manum. And what's so amazing about that is we're not disembodied intellects. So we're not angels. We're, we're enfleshed. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're not just some animal claw manipulating the material world. We, we have a capacity to be engaged self-reflectively and transcendently with the whole of, of what is. To be Catholic, katholon in Greek, is to be according to the whole. And when we think of technology, I, I suppose that the two extremes would be just, you know, unthinkingly embracing the next best thing, just open-ended gullibility. And, you know, no matter what new technologies are invented, we'll, we'll outsmart them to make the fix for what trouble they cause. And then at the opposite pole would be a reflexive dismissal of, of anything new and, and even a demonizing of, of new technologies. I, 
I think that the the healthy middle way is to be contemplatively critical, which is to say to be fully engaged, but not immersed in in this uh, in this brave new world, because Christ Himself has formed us to go out to be in the world for its transformation rather than simply leaving the world behind or, or drowning in it. So it's probably worth pointing out though. I mean, when someone hears the word technology, they're thinking electronic computer chip, uh, an LED screen, right? But, but thinking about Christ as the young son of a carpenter, technology to him and a hammer or, or some other tool, but it doesn't have to be electronic to be technology. No, this gets to the heart of it. So for the ancients, there were different types of knowledge. Techne would involve practical knowledge, especially the, the material arts, you know, like architecture or, or you mentioned carpentry. The other Greek word episteme was, was speculative knowledge, which would, would be distinct. But when, when the stories were told of technology and its place, very fascinatingly, the god of, of technology in Greek, Hephaestus, in Latin, Vulcan, the, the god of technology was, was hobbled. He was, he was handicapped and What's, what's so fascinating about that is that it begs the question, is the God of technology handicapped because his whole identity is responding to what needs to be fixed? So you ask the question, well, how does medicine develop? Well, it develops in response to disease and, and injury and mortality. But, but the flip side of why the God of technology is hobbled is could it also be that his very inventions are inevitably also simultaneously impairing his humanity? And and this 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 twofold truth about technology goes all the way back. It it's not only before the cell phone, before the television set, like, you know, the ancient Greeks were talking about how, for example, the technology of, of the book, you know, that came with the alphabet, how that technology altered human memory. So before the book, before the written word, wisdom had to be carried in the memory. And once it no longer has to be carried in the memory, that, that faculty of what it is to be human doesn't have to exert itself in the same way and can actually become very weak. So, you know, fast forward to something like the automobile. Well, the word means self-mover. And on the one hand, it allows us to go to more places faster than than most human beings have ever lived, have ever gone. And yet at the same time, it forces us to go to more places and at a pace that, that isn't good for us. And it actually 
can cause health problems with the legs, which were made for walking and running, atrophying for, for lack of use. So to have a contemplatively critical understanding of how the inventions of our hands are forming, transforming, deforming our lives is, is just an essential activity for being human. I mean, you take, take, for example, the myth of Prometheus. So Prometheus steals the fire from the gods and is condemned to be punished by being chained to the rock and the, the bird is pecking at its, his liver for all eternity. You just think, what, what's up with that crazy story? Well, fire has the capacity to, to transform things and also destroy things. And when that transformative, even destructive power is used without reference to or according to the logic of God, what inevitably happens, but it comes back to harm us. And I don't want to over-interpret the story of Prometheus, but I find it fascinating that that the bird goes after his liver. His liver is being pecked at for all eternity. And, you know, the liver is the the great filter of, of toxins from, from the body. And so that wound is always open and inflamed, festering about our own human life, crying out by being just overwhelmed by the, by the, the immensity and complexity of our own inventions that, that strikes me as just a very profound yeah. meditation on is, is what there, it is to be is human. Is there something uniquely human or is it a, a component of being human to have an unquenchable thirst for more? I won't get into the debate about birds arranging sticks in certain ways and using them as tools. There's in one sense a, a continuum in uh, the activity of, of animals that that manipulate the natural world mm. as extensions of who they are. So the the tool using is uh, seems to be used across, uh, for example, the animal world as a way to concentrate the intentionality appropriate to to each of those animals. I think in in the case of what it is to be human, we also have a, a qualitatively different capacity to reflect on the meaning of our lives, of, of the whole universe, our, our meaning in relation to God, in light of our, our use of, of, of these different objects and uh, invented things that, that magnify some of our human powers even as other of those powers atrophy. Mm. So I, I think for us to be lovers of, of wisdom is, is going to require us in a, in a pretty constant, even systematic way to think through how our different inventions are, are shaping what it is to be human.
For example, Peggy Noonan just had an essay in the Wall Street Journal about how many of the uh, pioneers of artificial intelligence uh, very consciously make cultural reference to the story of Adam and Eve <laughs> and the the seizing of of the fruit and when when Steve Jobs decides to uh, found the company and he he chooses the apple <laughs> as the logo and then deliberately insists that a bite is missing be, be taken out of of that apple. There's a lot going on there. Mm. There's there's a desire to be like God. Mm. And and within that, uh, a certain baked-in arrogance to replace God. And that hyper-magnification of certain human powers also necessarily leads to a, a correspondingly dramatic atrophying and attacking of, of other human powers. So for example, the, you know, the, this generation holds in its hands, the, you know, the most sophisticated of inventions. And there's a, both a Titanic power associated with that. <laughs> and yet just this anxious impotence that the very sheer number and magnitude of choices just paralyzes freedom. <laughs> and you have a whole generation who's just longing for someone to tell them what to do because they don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, it's funny you would say that. I'm just reflecting. I went away from the practice of medicine for a few years and then came back. And when I came back, I came into a teaching environment with a lot of young student physicians and physicians. And in that period that I was away, handheld digital devices became everywhere, just ubiquitous, right? And a big part of that was the names and the dosages of medications. And, you know, a millennia ago when I was young, memorizing that was a big part of being a medical student and then having some memory bank of these common medications. And then when I came back, no one memorized any of those because why would you? Right. It was in that thing in your hand. But the, the thing that I found so funny was while they had access to all of this information, they couldn't tell me if the patient was sick or not <laughs> because you couldn't look that up. Right. That required a skill set that maybe had atrophied because of the technology, interestingly. Yes. I, I'm sure most, if not all of us, have had the experience of going into the doctor's office and we wonder if the physician is going to spend more time looking at us or more time looking at the screen. <laughs> and, and again, that begs the question. Now, I, I will say... The, I've been to certain physicians where there's another person in the room, a scribe, who is writing things down onto the, mm. the tablet, thus freeing the, the physician mm. to have the, the unmediated interaction with, with the patient. So again, it's, it's, it's not an either or. Mm. It's a, a question of how, how these inventions are going to serve our humanity rather than our humanity serving them. So this phrase that we're all confronted with now, artificial intelligence, when you hear that, what, what comes to mind? I mean, what's artificial about it or what's intelligent about it? And what's the difference? Well, human artifice has to do with 
with invention, with creativity as it expresses itself in the world. So that kind of artifice is in itself unproblematic, but there's an ambiguity in it. So if it's trying to improve on nature by actually ignoring nature, (laughs) um, then we've got a problem. So for example, the French philosopher René Descartes famously thought that animals were just machines, mechanisms. And so human beings then become the body soul relation becomes, you know, the ghost in a machine. And what happens with that view of the human person is when so-called artificial intelligence is created, it winds up persuading people that they're actually an inferior computer rather than a computer being, I don't know, uh, an inferior human being. Even that's an absurd mm. statement. Uh, sort a of computer, a who's, the, who's the potter, who's the clay? Yeah, a computer is, is an instrument. There's a, a book uh, written by the late Neil Postman, who was a secular Jewish student of social media, He wrote many famous books. My favorite is entitled Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology. But I'm quoting from another of his books, uh, The End of Education, Redefining the Value of School. And he talks about how we're actually conceiving what education is and, and how that changes according to the natural or invented reference points. So again, just as I read this little passage, think of, think of the role of computers in contemporary elementary, secondary Mm. college education. This is what he writes. Is the human mind, for example, like a dark cavern needing illumination a muscle needing exercise, a vessel needing filling, a lump of clay needing shaping, a garden needing cultivation. Or, as so many say today, is it like a computer that processes data? And what of students? Are they patients to be cared for? Troops to be disciplined? Sons and daughters to be nurtured? Personnel to be trained? resources to be developed? Each of those questions that he asks embodies a certain educational philosophy, which is to say a certain understanding of what it is to be human. And part of being contemplatively critical of technology is is just to be very conscious of how the, the language of artificial intelligence just saturates our, our own understanding of ourselves and our world. So, you know, is our brain fundamentally about data processing or information storage, or is there something more complex, richer, deeper going on? 
lot hinges on the answer to that question. <laughs> yes, most definitely. And have we always had these questions, or is this a new phenomenon in history? I, I think it goes all the way back. Because the, the issues back. are pretty similar, although maybe the stakes are higher today. Yes. For example, in the first chapters of, of Genesis, these accounts of the, the coming to be of the, the human race as human in relation to the world, in relation to God, the technology, for example, of, of agriculture versus herding and the implications that that has on the stability of, of a food source and what type of civilizations can grow up in that agricultural setting and then the, the perils of that. So, you know, take Egypt, the, the great civilization of the day, what, what everybody envied. And yet that very civilization created slaves and dehumanized or in the book of Genesis, the account of the, the tower of Babel. So the story of human beings constructing a communal life built upon invention after invention, after invention without reference to God, somehow independent of the, the logic of God, what happens? It, it becomes its own punishment it collapses in on itself. Why? Because the, the hyper-specialized languages that such a complex civilization requires, that very hyper-specialization breaks down the ability of human beings to communicate with each other in the most basic, ordinary, human of ways. So mm. what frightens people today, artificial intelligence, I think is really just the begging of a millennia old question. Is it possible to be human without reference to the natural world and, and the creator and sustainer and redeemer of that world or not? And the fact that some of the artificial intelligence people today who are on the cutting edge, like the, the biggest cheerleaders, when, when you push them and just ask like, you know, could this lead to big trouble? And, and they say, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and one of them, uh, the biggest, one of the biggest cheerleaders, he says, you know, I would put the possibility of the extinction of the human race at about 10%. Wow. And you just like, you know, think, what are you even saying? Like, what does that even mean that our invention can so far exceed our capacity to understand it, control it, mitigate its negative effects, that it can turn on us and destroy us unthinkingly? Like that, that's just breathtaking to, to contemplate well, in many ways, you could envision sort of a B-rate movie of humans just becoming these sort of fat, amorphous blobs that push a button on an artificial intelligence machine. Sure. And, yeah, I mean, there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole history of dystopian 
imaginings, that is to say, human reflections on the downsides of technology, whether it's Aldous Huxley's Brave New World or George Orwell's 1984, even Plato's Republic in the, in the ancient world, or 2001, A Space Odyssey. I mean, you can go yeah. on and on on The Matrix. But you're just proving, I guess, really, that there's always been a fascination and a concern. It's, it's perennial. St. Thomas More, when he wrote uh, Utopia, the very word utopia literally means placeless. Topos, like topography, is, is, is place. And utopia is, is placelessness. And when, when you think of having a conversation with somebody today and they're always looking at their gadget, <laughs> you go to a restaurant and you know, a third of the people are talking with each other and the other two thirds of the people are sitting geographically just two feet away and yet are spiritually absent. They're, mm. they're placeless from the, the people who are closest to them. It's a bracing reminder that there is no ultimate abdication of what it is to be human. We just have to relentlessly engage the deeper things and and unfortunately, the Lord gives us a very beautiful created world that, that again and again can come to our rescue if, if we allow it. And within that, Christ promises, behold, I make all things new. So it, it's ultimately Christ who's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He embodies for us the logic of, of gift and he enfleshes what the divine creativity is. And, and it's there that things become very, very robustly engaging because just when you think of like how the mechanical clock was invented, you know, it was Benedictine monks looking for a way for the community to observe the liturgy of the hours, to have a set time a regular time throughout the day, different times to come together for prayer. So, you know, ultimately at the root of culture is cult. And if, and if we can understand that it all comes down to worship, what is our creativity serving and, and how is it being engaged by God and, and not just in a, a superficially do-gooder sense, but how is the fruit of our hands actually serving the communion of persons, the authentic sharing of life, the, the mutual indwelling of our lives? And that's the greatest adventure of all. I think about Matthew Kelly and some of his work pointing out that, you know, to paraphrase him, but never have we had more communication technology and never have we communicated less. Yeah, that's true. Um, so is it fair to say, though, the technology itself isn't, isn't the evil, it's our use or misuse of it? I think it's fair to make that observation, but I would, I would also say that technology isn't neutral. It carries a logic in it. Mm. And especially, we, you know, you can see this, for example, in various forms of computer technology where 
there is such an exaggeration of certain types of use of the human intellect that it threatens to reduce the human mind to essentially a type of of calculator and so there i i would say there there actually is a logic that each technology carries that is is more or less favorable or hostile to authentic humanity and it was created by someone with an idea one might say an agenda um, yes and even unknowingly with our adoption of the use of that technology we might be taking on that that unstated agenda or mission. Yes. Neil Postman, this was in the mid-90s, he gave an address actually to the bishops of the United States. And you can still find it on the interweb machine. <laughs> I, I think the title is Five Things That We Need to Know About Technological Change. Mm. Neil Postman. And one of them is that Technology, every technology embodies an idea, uh, some notion of what it is to be human. And, and there are going to be winners and losers. And technological change isn't simply additive. So it's not just the same world plus one thing. So like my ordinary life plus my cell phone. Postman observes that each technological change is not just additive, but ecological. That is to say, it changes everything. Like a drop of, of blue dye put into a, a glass of water, it transforms the, the whole thing. And it can create the idea that it's fully natural. It, it's always been there, always will be there. So it becomes atmospheric and insofar invisible. So by cultivating what it is to be contemplatively critical in relation to the, the, the work of our own hands, what we're doing is we're actually recovering and, and deepening a fullness of our humanity that that simply can't be taken over by the, the gadgets and inventions. Like when the psalmist says of the false gods, they have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have mouths, uh, they do not really speak. Their makers will come to be like them, and so will all who trust in them. That warning is actually a, a call to become more human, to reject a kind of idolatry that would sell our humanity short. We're, we're made by God, for God, according to the logic, the inner logic of God, which is intrinsically relational. It's a gift. It's love. And we have to be asking how our creativity can constantly be inspired, shaped, transformed by by that divine love. Well, not uncommonly, you're speaking sort of against contemporary, you know, cultural thought, right? Because everything is math and science. It's, we don't want all of our kids to study engineering and the sciences because of more technology, because that's going to solve the human problems. But I, I think 
it's not a difficult argument to make that if we look at the vast problems facing humanity, it's not a lack of technology. It seems to be a lack of humanity. And maybe that's not a coincidence, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you raise several questions in that observation. I really think that children who have the, the different gifts and aptitudes should definitely be helped to develop those, mm. but always in a, a communion of persons larger than just the like-minded. So the fact that you have Silicon Valley people <laughs> with their talents and limitations so highly concentrated and so in control of what they want on their terms, that just isn't a recipe for healthy human flourishing. I'd also say when it comes to education of, of the young, there has to be a greater attention to the cultivation of, of the body. We're not just a ghost in a machine, or as the Kentucky farmer and essayist Wendell Berry said, our body isn't just a shipping container for the brain. And so the, the recovery of those dimensions of education that take the fullness of our humanity seriously. So you, you've left out the humanities. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not that everybody has to be a type of English major, but it is to say that literature in all of its forms, you know, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, etc., develops aspects of our humanity in unique and necessary ways that really contribute to the, the sharing of, of an authentic life. The fact that our schools are becoming more and more like prisons and cages and people are becoming more and more anxious about the next antisocial eruption that happens. I think it, it's an invitation to ask, how can education serve what it is to be fully human as opposed to training people to, to serve the, the latest and, and the future machines? What could that look like in, in, in more practical terms for education? Is it as simple as no devices used in education or are, are you really thinking of something much, much grander than that? I think just to use Neil Postman's suggestions in uh, The End of Education, he actually advocates something both modest and radical, namely an introduction into the curriculum of the history of science, the history of technology, precisely to cultivate this, this art of, of asking the deeper questions. So just for example, the invention of the light bulb, we take it for granted. Uh, you know, the light bulb has always been here. What does it do? What idea does it represent? Well, the light bulb allows us to live as if it's high noon on a summer day, cloudless, whenever we want. And the strength of that is that we can do activities under that light that can accomplish any number of things. The, the downside is it, 
it can interfere with the necessary rhythms of, of our resting. And it can require of us more of an exertion of certain of our powers to the detriment of others. And before we know it, we can become a cog in somebody else's machine. So stores that are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, significantly the lights are never turned off. They only burn out and are replaced. And that, that becomes what happens to the, the employees too. They're just worked and worked and worked till they're burnt out and replaced. So by introducing into education a kind of philosophizing about technology, that would be one really interesting place to start. I would also be in favor of introducing early on in the curriculum, just training in what it is to, to think. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned mathematics, you know, <laughs> Mathematics and logic grew up together. And and so to actually teach children how to think in terms of logical arguments, common fallacies, it prepares them for um, a deeper engagement that isn't simply led by the nose by every demagogue or newscaster or both who, who come along. And, and finally, I also think just a, a much more robust engagement of, of the human body as opposed to being chained to a desk. Hmm. Anyone who has young kids has tried to answer the question, why do I need to study algebra? And we've all said, well, it teaches you to think. And this, their rebuttal should be, why do I need to think? <laughs> <laughs> and we would That's struggle. That's what it is to be human. <laughs> that would be a better answer. Now, sorry, parents, to give your kids uh, ammunition against you, but but really, you're talking about studying more about what it means to be human and what it means to think, and why does it matter? Yes, and for Christ, God in our flesh, who says, "I've come that they might have life and have it in abundance." He doesn't give us a bunch of machines. He gives us himself. He gives us each other. And significantly in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, heaven is described as both a city and a garden, a city with a garden at the heart of it. And the union of nature and culture is our destiny. So if you want to Fast forward to the end, and again, I'm using a mechanical metaphor there, fast forward. The vision of heaven isn't simply back to nature, as if technology is evil and needs to be eradicated, and we just need to get back to nature. I mean, there are some environmentalists who literally think that it would be better if the human race went extinct, because all the other species would be much more happier without us. I mean, that, that's insane. The opposite view of of heaven would be a kind of endless technological progress that is constantly solving the problems that it creates, but that is lived parallel to independent of God. And that is also insane. It is, you know, just literally unhealthy. It's a dead end. So 
for those who follow Christ, who spent his first 30 years as a, a tecton, so the Greek word for carpenter, it's actually a tecton, get the word architect. He blessed in his own person, human artifice. And so the vision that he gives us to aspire to is nature and culture united without confusion, distinct without separation, both the garden and the city together. And I find that eminently worthy of, of being human for the greater glory of God. Well, thanks for that discussion. I hope listeners agree with me and that I feel like I know more about it, what it is to be both human and more about technology as well. Thanks, Chris. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Do you have questions that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line. Or you can message me directly, 260-450-8878 and start the message with after the homily. And a special thanks to our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. You can enjoy an endless variety of amazing Catholic content by visiting SpokeStreet.com. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.